Hello, this is another edition of Oxford Cyber Podcast. This podcast was recorded on the 21st of June 2017. Good evening, everybody. Thank you so much for being here in this really, really warm room, but it would be worth it. So today we have a really special speaker that travels essentially everywhere in the world, and her biography she is fascinating. Her name is Jennifer Coppersmith. Cooper. Cooper. Sorry. Cooper Smith. She was born in South Africa, but when she was still a child, her family moved to the UK, where she did a bachelor and a PhD in physics from King's College London. And then, after finishing her PhD, and I'm really jealous about it, she traveled in India and Nepal. And then she did a lot of tutoring combined with motherhood, and I think there are also her, yes, we have her own child. <laughs> um, and then it's really fascinating her story because after doing a bit of teaching also in Oxford, they left Oxford to live to us in Australia to have a hobby farm with a lot of kangaroos, that again is fascinating for me. <laughs> and after Australia, they moved back to France where now they actually live. And uh, Jennifer published different books about physics uh, with Oxford University Press. So the first one is Energy, the Subtle Concept, the discovery, thank you so much, of Feynman blocks from Leibstein to Einstein. I'm so sorry for all that bad pronunciation. And this is a popular book about physics. And then she recently published this book that is The Lazy Universe, an introduction to the principle of least action, that is a semi-popular physics book, apparently has a lot of maths. And hopefully, the next one will not be an unpopular book, <laughs> but I'm sure you will fascinate us with your story today. Um, her talk is titled Margaret Thatcher, Lego, and the Priest for Destruction. That for me is already the perfect movie <laughs> title. And she asked me personally to switch off your mobile phone, please. And yeah, just enjoy the talk. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. Thank you, Christiana. There's one extra bit of traveling in my life that you missed out, uh, which is that uh, I was a research associate at the University of British Columbia working at Triumph in Vancouver. In Vancouver. So, uh, right. Is it not turned on? No, it's still on, but it's record. So yes, yes, this is microphone. just the microphone. The I just record. have to... The otherwise, we can, put, uh, we can put a microphone for you in three seconds. Um, yes, I think it might be it's necessary. Better. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. So, I haven't, got, I haven't got a very loud voice. No, because I'm so essential. This is the microphone. Sorry, guys. We will give, be back in five minutes. Yeah. Um, this is a microphone for your own recording. Yes, yes. And, oh, uh, okay. and that is like, yes. but it's not the microphone we record from. Yes. But we have... Th this is it? Yes. Oh, okay. It's complicated. Thank you all for coming on this incredibly hot day.
science that's in everyday life and barely counts as science. 
And then my father gave me this following, following example. Now when you do an experiment, it's, it's in a lab, right? But an experiment from which you can derive evidence and, and draw conclusions doesn't have to be carried out in a lab. It can just be noticing things in the world around you. So my father considered this as an experiment to show you the security of our knowledge in physics. We were all told that our laws are provisional, we have to constantly correct them, they could change tomorrow, and that is true. We must always be aware of that. But now, let's think of this story of his. Supposing you consider the broadcasting of the World Cup football final. It could be, you could have two billion television sets, including watching it through computers and other devices, turned on. Because we have a population of 7.5 billion now, so you could get, say, up to two billion people, uh, devices tuned in. And then when, you, when people watch it all around the world, they don't just see whether a, a light goes from red to green, say. No, there's the area of the pitch. I don't know how, anyone know how big a football pitch is? The area of it? The disposition of 22 players for one and a half hours, excluding the interval, and a ball second by second. That's the sort of knowledge we have. So you go to work or to school the next day or on your social website and communicate, and you say to your friends, did you see Zidane kick that ball or Gary Lineker do that save or whatever? My football knowledge is not very up to date. But anyway, the point is, is that you find you agree with the person that you're talking to. Two billion people say have the same result for this experiment carried around all round the world. Is it coincidence? Even where some of the televisions don't go, don't work, we know why they haven't worked most of the time. So, it, you know, if you say echinacea is good for you, it's probably the odds are like 1.01 to 1 that it's, you know, I'm not so cynical, you know, maybe it helps a little tiny bit. The odds that, that what's happening, because to construct these television sets, and the transmitting station, and all the, do all the recordings. It's not hocus pocus. It uses every law of physics. We're not talking about the recent physics, physics that still hasn't established itself, fringe physics. I'm talking established physics. It's not going to be overturned tomorrow or the next day. The odds of that just being coincidence are effectively zero. So the odds that we know something, we could say, are a trillion, 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 trillion to one. I don't quite how to quantify this. But you see what I'm talking about. So I want to make you really impressed, because we are, and not apologetic, we're really impressed with the sort of knowledge that science is bringing in, because we're getting into bad times when there are people talking about alt-realities and, and knocking science. And uh, I want to knock that on the head. So that is an example of a wonderful story from my father. So now we're going to look at the principle of least action and see what perhaps it could tell us in a broad brush sort of way uh, what we could learn about it, maybe for economics and other things. So now imagine you're going for a walk in the Danish countryside and you turn the corner and suddenly you see this 
City in Miniature, Sparkling in the Distance. Well, because of the title of the talk, you all know that I'm talking about Legoland. But supposing you don't know about Lego bricks, okay? And you see buildings and bridges and pretend sheep and cranes and windmills and such like. And when you get really close, you see some bit of it is still a construction site. And when you look at the edges, where they haven't quite finished that sheep and that building or whatever, you see that it's always has right-angle corners in the raw bit, where they haven't finished it. Yeah? An outline, castellations, and you might see some holes in walls, and they've also got those edges, which make right-angle turns. And you might see some clumps of what you later know is Lego, and they've also got these castellations around the edge. And so from all this evidence, you deduce, hmm, there are lots of different varieties of structures. You can make anything, but there's one basic fundamental brick, a Lego brick. Okay, okay, I know there are actually a few more because you need a special thing for the hubcap, a crane hook, and electrical gizmos. But basically the point is that you can make such a variety of complicated structures from only a few fundamental elements. All right. Now, in 1800, James Dalton, should we wait for this to go by? James Dalton discovered the atomic theory that everything is made of atoms, whether it's air, water, chalk, mud, grass, or what have you. And the extraordinary thing is it's a similar evidence, similar reasoning process to looking at those castellated edges and deducing that there are Lego bricks. But of course, in the atomic theory, it's incredibly more nuanced. I think you'll know why. Because an atom is 10 to the minus 20 kilograms of a few 10 to the minus 10 meters across and so on. So you can't see one, and certainly Dalton couldn't. You couldn't even see them in hundreds, thousands. So, but in essence, it's the same process of reasoning that everything, all the variety around you, is just made from this small collection of fundamental elements. I think actually there are 118. I looked this up, it's not the kind of thing I remember. Okay. And now we come to Newton in 1687. When I say now we come, we should go back actually, from 1800 back to Newton. And he also had this approach, which I call a reductionist approach, when you explain very complicated things in a wonderfully simple way. And he explained just about everything, and these are his examples, from how a fly walks on water, why the Earth has a shape that it has. It's not, uh, it's not exactly spherical, it bulges around the equator. How magnets attract or repel, an apple falling from the tree, and the orbit of the moon. How? How are these various things and all the incredible variety and specificity of everything that we see around us, how is it explained? Particles and forces, that's it. And what does a, a force do? It makes a particle accelerate, that's all. And it's just so amazing, one of the biggest triumphs of human thought ever, possibly the biggest step forward in physics that there's ever been. And it could have been so much harder, uh, more complicated. I mean, a, a force might have made the particles swell or shrink or something quite different. Okay. Let's consider the orbit of the moon. The amazing thing that Newton did is he realized that it had the same origin 
as an apple falling from the tree. And this embracing under one theory, one umbrella, things that happen on the earth and things that happen in the non-terrestrial arena, outer space, was absolutely incredible. I think it's the first time that those two were brought together, those two regimes were brought together in a quantitative way, I'm not sure. So what he realized is that if you throw something, it falls to earth, and if you could throw something very far, I think I've written here, the range of a cricket ball, maximum range that somebody has achieved is 435 feet. But if you could really give it a whacking great throw, it would just keep going on, miss the earth, and go round and get into orbit. And this was just so incredible to realize that the moon is really trying to fall down to earth and keep, keeps on missing because it's got all this energy and speed that it has to keep on going. All right. So this was a very, very difficult problem for Newton to solve. He said it's the only problem that gave him a headache. So when Newton has a headache, you know it's really hard. And so <laughs> what he did actually is he thought of the body of the moon as being subdivided into an infinity of these particles, and likewise for the Earth. And then he considered an attraction between, difficult with a microphone, a particle in the Earth, the body of the Earth, to one in the body of the moon, and so forth, adding them together like that. And, well, of course, there were lots of mathematical problems. We had to invent a whole new kind of maths to do this, because how do you keep track of an infinite number of things? I will say that one way you can look at it is just think of the accountancy problem. I mean, for one thing, you've got to make sure you don't overcount the fact that you've got an attraction from a particle on Earth and a particle on the moon, and you don't want to count that again, the particle on the moon and how much it's attracted to the particle on Earth. So you've got to keep tabs on that. But even within the body of the Earth and within the body of the moon, you want to make sure that you do track every single particle. You don't miss any out, all infinite number of them. And uh, you don't count any of them twice or more than twice. So, whoa, that's a big accountancy problem apart from anything else. So, as I say, it could have been so much more difficult. You could have had a particle or a mass swelling. You could have had the force cast anew for every trio of particles instead of being able to look at them a pair at a time. Talking of trios, it's quite startling to realize that Newtonian mechanics fails when you have three bodies together simultaneously. It can't crack the three-body problem. Nevertheless, Newtonian mechanics, as we all know, was a remarkable success, bringing in the clockwork mechanistic universe. So it was a real watershed. Nothing was ever the same again. And as I say, everything was explained in a reductionist way. I might add, as we're all, you know, very much in the throes of political convulsions in, in Britain and the United States and France and everywhere to kind of have people have a different perspective on it. Who ruled England in 1687? Does anyone know? Do, do you care? Well, 
I did look it up, and it's James II. And, and 1688 was the glorious uh, yeah, revolution. Um, so, and now we come to Thatcher. Now, Thatcher, in the 80s, uh, there's a quotation of hers which caused such a stir that even her press office uh, took the unprecedented step of issuing an explanation. And she said, there is no such thing as society. We all know that. <laughs> it, is, it is funny and, and sad as well. So what she meant by that, apparently, according to the press office, was that... Um, Everything that happens in, in an economic system, in, an, in a society, is down to the actions of individuals, and they are acting to further their own interests. And it's, it's not a stupid idea at all. In fact, it starts with Adam Smith. And um, it, it's Adam Smith, in the, in the 18th century, pretty well founded the study of economics. And you have to realize that economics is incredibly difficult, much harder than physics. We can never do a, a controlled experiment. And there are so many variables. So to, to have this sort of simplification that we only need to look at what individuals do and then that will, everything will follow on from that is a wonderful simplification. And we probably had to start that way. Uh, and so that was a real advance but it doesn't mean that we mustn't progress from there. And that's, and I hope to show that um, that outlook, that we only need to look at what individuals do, is uh, gravely flawed. It's too flawed in its simplicity. It's oversimple. So anyway, before we get to that, I'll just summarize that we have the Lego bricks. A simple brick can bring in all these different structures, likewise for atoms. Newton's reductionist view, you just have particles and forces, and then there is a lot of complexity. How you deal with that is you have a lot of particles and you add them together. And likewise, uh, Thatcher and Adam Smith, to understand an economy, you just have to look at the, the actions of individuals and add those interactions again and again and again, and everything else will follow from that. Uh, and those models work so incredibly well that it's tempting to think that this reductionist approach is always the one to take. And uh, I would be very tempted to think that if I hadn't learnt something new. Uh, but it starts not to work and not to explain everything. As I said before, there are actually very few cases where Newtonian mechanics works. That came as a real surprise to me when I found that, long after university days. School, and it's not just the three-body problem, hasn't been solved. School and uni problems have been cherry-picked for their simplicity. And we're not told that. Um, consider engineering. You could have a beam uh, or a girder, a beam in a, in a house, say, and you press it at one end, you apply a force, and according to Newton, the whole thing will then move over. Okay. But what, that's in an idealized case. What happens in reality is that the beam could compress, it could twist, it could bend, it could shear. I need two hands to show that. Uh, and engineers got there well ahead of physicists, actually. They realized they had to use the principle of virtual world. Such a, such a wonderful 
sound. There's so many wonderful names here. Principle of virtual work, I just love it. And it actually is part of the principle of least action. It's incorporated within it. So, as I say, we had Adam Smith's remarkable advance, but gravely wrong through being oversimplified. And to quote Einstein, any theory should be as simple as possible, but not more simple. <coughs> so what we need to do is replace a universal particle by a universal principle. And that's what the principle of least action does. And it is cast in a different way. Instead of being concerned with particles and forces, it's concerned with energies. Now you might think, well, okay, you've just replaced particles by energies. Isn't that reductionist all over again? But what saves it from being reductionist is that many of you will know that energy comes in an infinite variety of different forms. There isn't one form that's more fundamental than another. Even rest mass, say, is not more fundamental than the energy of a photon, electrical energy, chemical energy, what have you. And so, in fact, you haven't got one form, you have got an infinite variety of forms, and you have a rather, instead, a universal principle that's going to know how to handle this complexity. Um, so as energy is so important to understanding the principle of least action, I'm going to try oops, I'm going to try and explain energy to you, the most famous equation. I can't explain the whole of energy to you, that's a big a big thing. You'll have to look, read my other book. I'm going to try and explain the most famous equation in physics, which is E equals MC squared. And don't worry, there won't be any maths. And in fact, well, probably regulations don't allow us to lock the doors. But no one is to leave this room until they have understood it. And you will. So, in, uh, so E equals MC squared. Did that come through, by the way? Well, you will understand it. So E is energy, M is mass, and C is the speed of light. Okay, now in order to, to do this, we're going to need a demonstration. Everyone knows that well, physics is an experimental subject. I'm not quite ready, Murray, but Murray's going to stand here. He's my husband, and he's been helping so incredibly much. Yeah. Um, so we, um, it's based on Einstein's thought experiment in 1905, and uh, we can't exactly demonstrate a thought experiment, so we're going to demonstrate a real experiment. Uh, which was devised by Herman Bondi, Professor Herman Bondi, who was a professor of physics at King's College London at the time I was a student there. And um, yes, we, Murray, you can come and set us up now. So I don't know if you want everyone to close their eyes, avert their vision. We, we're a little bit dubious that, that this is going to work because we had to um, pack it and take it through security and unpack it and do soldering and whatnot in a hotel bedroom and hope the smoke detectors didn't go off and, uh, and it's the hottest day. Watch and wait. Wow! I am so impressed! I think Murray deserves a, a, a clap.
Actually, I will say a little bit about physics demos because I have tried to do physics demos before. To explain something difficult, as, uh, whenever I can explain something simply, the more simple I can explain it to you, you can bet that's taken me longer and the more I've had to think about it beforehand. Same for a demo. The more simple the demo, the more bloomin' hard it is. So when things actually go wrong in physics, in a practical way, you think, oh, well, you know, I didn't take account of friction properly. Or, um, you know, we, we once tried a demo where we have a candle in a can and we wanted to see, and it burns the oxygen, we wanted to see the, the can collapse. Hopeless, so difficult. And after you've done two experiments, ten experiments, and they all don't work, then you realize there's some deep physics there. It's because it's not just the second law which, which uh, messes everything up. It's the fact that everything in your physics textbooks is a model. And when you're doing something, it's real. And you've got all kinds of nuisance factors that come in. Anyway, I'll stop rabbiting on. And now I'll talk about this. Now, because I just think it's so wonderful. Now, anyway, and from this, you are going to learn about E equals MC squared. Now, first of all, what can you deduce about what's inside the box without even looking in it? Okay, so you, you're going to be a bit like Poirot or Jonathan Creek and extract information. And the first thing you know, all of you, is things don't just move for no good reason. There's got to be something. What about the energy? Energy is conserved. You have to pretend that there isn't all this gubbins here. We were going to get a shield and you would have just seen an, a box isolated. But in effect, it is. There's no Wi-Fi. You know, we could have made the box a bit bigger. If we ever do this again, we'll, we'll try that. Uh, and so all of this would have been inside. So that would have been even more beautiful, I grant you. You would have just seen a box happily sitting there, minding its own business, and all of a sudden, it decides, I'm going to go that away. So, what you know is, hmm, that took energy. Energy doesn't come from nowhere, so there must be energy in that box, stored, potential energy. In effect, a battery. And here it is. Okay, but we could have sneaked it and put it in the box so it's hidden, right? Um, okay, a battery. And then it converts the potential energy into the energy of motion. So if you deduce that, you've deduced a lot about the contents of the box without even having to look in there. But there's so much more. Okay, the next thing requires you to know what momentum is. But you all do know if you've either been a passenger in a car or a driver of a car or any other vehicle, and that pretty well covers all of you, I should think. So you're driving along and you see a lorry ahead of you going at about 100 kilometers per hour and you know that you better give it a bigger stopping distance, hang back, give it a lot of space, as compared to a small car, a Deutschville, or what have you, going at the same speed, probably can't go at that speed, I don't know, at 100 kilometers per hour, because it's got less momentum. Momentum is mass times velocity. The second thing you have to know is that there's, just like the 
there's only a certain amount of energy. Energy must be conserved in the system. The total amount of momentum, well, I should say momentum can be added. That's the second. You need to know what momentum is, that it can be added, and the total amount of momentum in an isolated system has to be constant. All right? That's about as hard as it gets, If you, this whole explanation. If you can grab hold of that, you're okay. So, in other words, what we can do, deduce, actually, which way did it go, the box? It went that away, didn't it? That away, okay. Yeah, otherwise it would have fallen. If the box goes that away, there must be a mass inside that went that away. That's the big thing you've got to deduce from it. So you're all happy with that, aren't you? Okay? Now, in this case, that is because not only is momentum conserved, but it happens to be zero in this case. Okay, because the box isn't moving now. It wasn't moving at the start. So even though it was moving in the middle of the demonstration, that meant that as much momentum from this box has a certain mass, the, the box going that way, a mass inside had to be going that way. Okay? I'll wait for this. is a gun that triggered with a timer and powered by a battery that fires a bullet. So you can imagine we could have had a lot of trouble with airport security. We were certainly wondering about this because we'd come over from France just a few days ago. But luckily we just weren't bothered at all. So yeah. Afterwards ask me and you can look inside there. This is very interesting. So what happens is the box moves and in order for momentum to be conserved, mass, there must be a redistribution of mass and mass must appear at the other end opposite from the gun. Just hold on to that key fact. Okay. Now the next thing is, I didn't say how heavy that box was, I did, how many kilograms or grams. I didn't say how fast it went and what distance were you saw. But that conservation of momentum has, law has to apply whatever mass. The box could be as big as a container that goes on a ship to Australia. It could be as big as an oil tanker. It could be as big as a planet. And it could go slowly or it could go fast. Talking of fast, this was Einstein's thought experiment. He thought, supposing we have a flash gun, a gun at one end, which flashes light, and then the light goes from one end to the other. And of course, light goes incredibly fast, faster than anything else. In order to understand this, we have to agree that light has momentum, because which isn't a very obvious thing, but it was known well before Einstein. So for example, one of the bits of evidence is that uh, you have comets and the tails of comets are actually pushed away from the direction of the sun by the radiation pressure of all that light coming out of, uh, out of the sun, solar radiation pressure. So you just have to grant that light has momentum. And there are very fine experiments that can show it. Actually, you, you get those things in opticians' windows sometimes where something rotates and you shine a torch on it on this little vein, 
but in fact it's pretty difficult, it's not possible to argue that for momentum conservation. You really need a little vein hanging on a quartz fibre or something, and it's a very delicate experiment, but it can be done, and you shine light on it, and it makes the thing move like that. So anyway, we'll grant that um, light has momentum. The, how much does the box move? Well, not very much if you had a light gun. This is the bit where we have to imagine it, obviously. Um, it's a very fine experiment. It's not as if when you take a flash photo that you're suddenly thrown backwards by the recoil. Okay, so you're allowed to laugh at that. <laughs> okay. So imagine we do this experiment. We have our flash gun and we open it up. Well, actually, before I say that, I'll say we have the flash gun at one end and then the light goes. We could have a mirror behind the flash gun to collect any light that is reflected that way. To collect it, gather it up and push it that, make it go that way, okay? And then we don't want the light to keep on bouncing back and forward. So at this far end, we don't have another mirror. In fact, we have the opposite. We have black paint. The inner surface can be painted with black paint to absorb the light, okay? So that it will actually come to a stop. So now, so you're all happy with that. A flash gun and the light goes and stops instead of bouncing back and forth, all right? Now, you open the box, and what do you find? Nothing. There's no mass there. Hmm. But then, when you feel the black paint, it feels warm to the touch. And then you think, as Einstein thought, I wonder if you can say that that warmth, that heat energy, is mass. And he thought, yes. That's the answer. And so E, the energy, equals M. So you might be a bit stupefied now and think, uh, what about C squared equals MC squared? And that can be explained pretty simply. C, as you know, is a constant. Well, maybe you don't know, so I'll tell you. So the speed of light in a vacuum is a constant. It's a very big speed, but you could just as well call it one if you like. I mean, I'm only 1.5 meters tall, but we could say it's one Jennifer unit of height, if you like. So we could say that the speed of light has the unit of one, and then one times one, c squared, one times one is still one, so e equals m totally comes out correctly. Um, that isn't a cheat, actually, because particle physicists and lots of other physicists they do set C equal to 1, because they don't like to do calculations with a lot of uh, difficult units, and that's exactly what they do. But nevertheless, I don't blame you for thinking you've been shortchanged, and if you do want to see actually equals MC squared, and not just equals M, you can go into my website, www.jennifercoopersmith.com, and you look at the article that's called e equals MC squared, a simple demo, scroll down to the very bottom, and you will actually see all the calculations there. It's school maths. It's not even uni maths, and it doesn't assume C equals one. It's correct, and you get E equals MC squared coming out of it. But you know what? 
if you're not particularly interested or you don't like maths that much, I wouldn't bother because you have got it. E equals M. See, you've really learned something tonight, but I don't want, e, even if the doors were unlocked now, I wouldn't like you to all run off. But. <laughs> so we are forced into the, into the conclusion that heat has mass and that, in fact, energy has mass. And, well, when I say mass, is that really the same as mass that can be uh, weighed and that is attracted to by gravity to the earth or the sun or something? Yes, absolutely. So Rumford, for example, Count Rumford around the end of the 18th century, he tried weighing heat. It's a terribly clever experiment. He had a block of ice and then he heated it up and it was in a pan and then it turned into water and he had very fine scales to try and see if there was any change in the balance. And there wasn't, because it's too fine an experiment. There's no way with that sort of equipment that he could do that. But in effect, he was right. And that kind of experiment can now be done. And you can also find that, for example, starlight is bent towards the sun as it grazes the sun. And this was an experiment done by Sir Arthur Eddington in the 20th century and was a great confirmation of Einstein's actually his theory of general relativity rather than special relativity. So, right, so now back to the principle of least action. The box moves. Oh yeah? Oh yeah? Okay, how do you know that the box moved? How do you know that it is now in a new location compared to where it was before? Well, actually, you only know that it moved with reference to the background. Like, you saw it move relative to me. If everything here was a whiteout, I don't mean a fog that could have some resistance. No resistance, just absolute void. So it really was that isolated system that I was talking about at the beginning that I wanted you to imagine. If there was a complete void, you wouldn't know that the box had moved and was now in a new location, would you? So the system is crucial. You need not only a background, the foreground. You can't understand the foreground unless you define the background. What is a system? A system in physics is a bit like that football match I was talking about. You define the, the pitch and the players and the football. And if a golf ball arrives on the football pitch, that's wrong. That's not part of your system. So you, you discount that. So Newtonian mechanics is plagued by these problems of not knowing what is the system and where it begins and ends. So for example, you could have the, the TGV train in France or the bullet train in Japan. And if you're on the platform and one of those whizzes by, you know about it. You know, it's just terrifying. But if you're on that train, you can ignore that kinetic energy. Okay, so this is something that's always thought of as being a paradox. It isn't actually a paradox, but it's very strange. And you also get fictitious forces. It also has absolute space, absolute time. And the principle of least action, surprisingly, it resolves 
all of these so-called paradoxes. How does it resolve it? It's terribly clever. It resolves it because everything in it is, is very cleverly always referenced to the system. Nothing is left dangling. No assumptions are left undeclared. It's, it's very honest in that way. So Newton was well aware of these problems, but the principle of least action totally resolved it. And um, it also resolves action at a distance. How does it do that? Because everything in the principle of least action happens in such a way that, that any uh, energy, any change only has to look, for a change to happen, the system only has to look at its very close surroundings in space and in time. And you can also deduce conservation of momentum that we were using and conservation of energy. It isn't something add, extra added into the theory. You can deduce it from the principle of least action. Wow. It's time to tell you what the principle of least action actually is. So as I said, it is concerned with energies. And although energy has an infinite variety of different forms, it basically comes in two categories. Kinetic energy, the energy of motion, and potential energy, energy that's stored. But I actually prefer to look at it another way. It's energy of interaction between the different parts, the different components of a system. So potential energy, or interaction en energy, is a system feature, a whole system, whereas the kinetic energy relates to one individual aspect of the system. Anyway, these two kinds of energies interact with each other and always oppose each other such that the difference between them is the least it can possibly be at every instant and through the whole time window of the problem. So it's, it's abstract and I wouldn't say that it's something that uh, you can grab hold of uh, immediately. So the potential energy gives the marching orders, the directives, to individual kinetic energies. Um, but there isn't a hard and fast distinction between those two categories. For example, we could have an electrolytic cell. We have ions in solution. Supposing they're negative ions, and they, and they are near the negative electrode. And they think, oh, I don't like it here. And so they speed up to get away and then they aim for the positive electrode, all right? Now, as they get nearer to the positive electrode, by the way, because this is a theory, as I said, which only you only need to look at your immediate neighborhood to know what to do next, um, they don't see that electrode far away. They just know what's happening just infinitesimally nearby. So anyway, eventually, a whole club of them end up at the positive electrode, but then they form a little shield around it. And so they somewhat reduce the strength of that positive charge, and they, in fact, are, have a repelling action, repelling further electrons, that are, or ions, rather, that are going in solution towards that electrode. So what was a kinetic energy has now morphed into a potential energy. So there's always this toing and froing and balancing between one and the other. Now, how does this tie in with E equals mc squared? Well, kinetic energy is a form of energy, and therefore kinetic energy has to have a mass. 
I don't just mean a half MV square, I mean it's a massy thing. And anything that's massy has inertia. This is, these things are going to be quite tricky and I'm not expecting everyone to understand this so you can let some things slip away. And something that has inertia, which is to do with masses in motion, according to Newton, it's reactive. A force pushes a mass, it resists, and it moves off in another direction, it accelerates. And according to the um, uh, Hungarian mathematician and physicist Cornelius Lanchos, in the principle of least action, kinetic energy takes on the role of momentum, that momentum used to have in Newtonian mechanics. It is the new inertia. And so this absolutely ties in with E equals mc squared. You could hardly imagine that the principle of least action was going to work if E equals mc squared wasn't the case. It didn't come out, E equals mc squared didn't come out of the principle of least action. It came from Einstein's theory of special relativity. But boy, it's all one theory. Which is hardly surprising because there's only one physics out there ultimately. It doesn't know any arbitrary distinctions between one theory and another. It's all got to match up. So what we have in, to, just to recap and try and make it easy to understand, kinetic energy reacting against potential energy, potential energy reacting against kinetic energy, constantly, all the way through time and the cycle of the system. So another example could be somebody on a swing the swing, when it's high up, has high potential energy and its kinetic energy goes to zero, it stops. And then it descends, it speeds up, and its potential energy is getting lower and lower. And then there's a toing and froing between those two forever. And um, the in this way, action, which is a quantity which is defined as energy times time, comes out the least that it can possibly be. Uh, we're getting to the economics pretty soon. One final generalisation before we get there is that although the principle of least action is always put in this way as a balancing act between kinetic energy and potential energy, actually, I believe that you can go further than that. The kinetic energy are individual components of a system. Potential energy is a superstructure within the system. And there has to be some balance between them. Each one bootstraps the other, and you couldn't get that going on to infinity. So they have to oppose each other. So that's why you do get kinetic energy minus potential energy. Whereas we're so used to, from our other physics, the two things being added together, now we have a theory where you, ha you have to have the difference between them. So I'm explaining this to you. So we've really got individual components, which are the kinetic energies, and superstructure aspects of the whole system. Okay? But I believe that you can go further and think of kinetic... Uh, it's not just kinetic energy, it's any individual aspect. For example, the mass of a particle. It's not just the kinetic energy that modifies itself in order to make action come out as a min the minimum that it can. It could be its mass. Uh, could be part of the game plan. But how can that be? Ah, but we know that not only has energy e equals mass, but mass is equivalent to energy. 
e equals m, it can also have m equals e. And so, for example, a mass could uh, distort the space-time that it finds itself in, and in effect, it's reacting against the superstructure, even a mass that's stationary. So it's not just its kinetic energy. Is mass an individual component, however? Well, yes, it is. Don't ask me what my mass is. That's personal, all right? So if my mass is personal, it's the quintessential personal thing that they could be, the mass of something. The mass of something is an individual component, and it's also part of the principle of least action. So there we have a toing and froing between individual <coughs> components and whole system structures. And that's very broad. And so now we can get on finally to Thatcher and neoliberal economics. So in the principle of least action, when you get this toing and froing, kinetic energy or individual components um, counteracting whole system superstructures and the other way around, then you get the stable outcome that you want. That's the way physics works. And it's terribly general. Works, as I said, much better than Newtonian mechanics. Relativistic speeds, no problem. Huge masses, tiny masses, no problem. Okay. Can we say that in a society, if we have um, an interaction between individuals and societal aspects with the least tension, then we will have the most stable and prosperous society coming out of it. Well, it's not something I can prove to you, but I'd be very surprised if that wasn't right. We all know that for each and every one of us, we are always in this dilemma, we're always pulled two ways. We do want to further our own self-interest, but at the same time, that doesn't sum us up totally. We also want to do good. We, we are social, and we, you know, it depends on each one of us. We, there's a continuum. Some of us are more to one end than the other, and some of us are right in the middle. But nevertheless, there is a tension all the way through. And to then have a theory where, where you're only looking at one end is, is gravely in error. So what are, what are societal aspects? Well, it could be, what is a society? It could be this pub. It could be Oxford University all around us. I don't actually know what counts as a societal aspect that's influencing our behavior. But, but one thing that's crucial to the principle of least action is that those two things, the individual components and the whole system components, it is absolutely essential that the interaction goes both ways. It's not all one way. That's, in a sense, what Newton got wrong, um, that a force influences a particle. A particle, even if it's accelerating, is a very different thing from a force. So it's a bit of a, uh, by some fudge, it does go the other way. But the principle of least action totally resolves this. And there's a beautiful symmetry between individual components affecting complicated superstructures and the other way. And this surely is what is happening in society to, and, and should happen in order to get the best 
society and the, the best economy, which we all want. So in other words, instead of just trickle down, what we also need is trickle up. So you heard it here. It's my neologism. And if this does get as a new, made as a YouTube, and if it does go viral, I don't know how these things happen, if, if, if. You heard it here first, guys. I'm not saying trickle down doesn't happen and isn't true, but that's not enough. That not, I don't mean in a moral sense that's not enough. That's not the only thing that actually happens. Trickle up does happen, and it's there. And you can't have a theory that ignores half of, half of what the explanation really is. So, okay. I can carry on, or, or that could be enough to be going on with. Okay, I will carry on a little bit. So then some of you might say, ah, but the neoliberal outlook is that you only need to have people really acting to further their own ambitions, to get rich, for example. Um, this, is, this works so well in the United States. Look what a fantastic country with a high standard of living and uh, moon landings and all that. Okay, now I think the principle of least action, well, not just that, but physics, can, can answer this as well. In the principle of least action, it's very important to give your boundary conditions, your starting conditions. And you do know that in all things in physics, if you have an asymmetry in the starting conditions, well, you're going to have, not an asymmetry, you're going to have unusual starting conditions. You could well have, not a wrong answer, but you could have unusual outcomes. You have to be very aware of that. I think that the countries like the US have done so well because they have a very unusual starting condition, which is we got their first ism when they went to America and killed the bison and, and, uh, and plundered the place and all that sort of thing. And the same for all the other colonial powers. And um, you know, this has only been going on for a blink. I mean, 200, 250 years. It's still working its way through. So the fact that they're still on top, just, is hardly a proof that that method of explanation, neoliberal economics, it doesn't prove that it's right. And physics is suggesting that we ought to be very suspicious that is a valid proof. What else can I say? Oh yes, this is terribly important. The principle of least action has the individual components and the whole system structures counteracting each other for the reason that we, we wouldn't want to have the unphysical outcome that we end up with infinite energy or zero energy. That's a nonsense, isn't it? Well, can we really have endless growth? That's also a nonsense. It's just nonsense. You do hear people, they say, oh, well, we're never going to run out of human ingenuity. Well, I'm not sure. If we think of, uh, is it the uh, Monty Python song? You know, I think we could run out of intelligence, but even if, if we do have uh, human ingenuity carrying on, uh, we all still need to eat and we need to drink, and we need to have uh, copper, tin, nickel, uh, all kinds of things. And well, yeah, we actually, we could run out. So that is a thing where, again, physics can, I think, give us a broad picture of 
constraints on the problem and lead us away from stupid errors. So we cannot have endless growth. And the, the final thing I should say is that I think that we have been going through various trends very, very quietly. When we know we went through peak oil, and that went by sort of almost as a whisper. And then the uh, demographer, Swedish demographer Hans Rosling, said that we went through another thing called peak child. It's very interesting. You should look it up on Google or something. But I reckon that there's another peak that's so quiet that we're going through and nobody has noticed it. And I had to coin another neologism to, to understand this, uh, which is that we have thought, in our physics classes and our biology classes, we talk about the system and the surroundings. And the surroundings could be a heat bath and it's infinite and what you dump into the surrounding doesn't make any difference. Well, perhaps we've passed peak isolated system where you don't need to worry about the surroundings. My husband helped me with the neologism because that was rather a long a mouthful. So I think we've passed peak denial. And it's about time we, we stop this nonsense. So yeah, we're going to fight back and get to these people who say that uh, physics and science can't teach us anything and we can make up our own facts. There is one thing that does grow, actually. Just one thing. Does anybody guess what it is? Knowledge, actually. At the start of uh, Kersler's book, The Sleepwalkers, he says knowledge is cumulative. You can add to it, you don't subtract from it. And so that is one thing that you must all do, you young people, is try and understand the world as much as you possibly can. Try and know everything and understand everything. And then you can make a difference because knowledge will always serve you. You know, you came here not knowing that you're gonna really learn about E equals MC squared. You might not be interested in physics, but that knowledge is never going to be a waste. And it's, it's could be, you can never be sure when some knowledge in one discipline won't help you in another discipline. And so knowledge is the one thing that does always grow, and that could help us. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to our podcast. You can find more details about all our events at our website, www.oxfordcyber.com. Also, please follow us on Twitter, at Oxford Cyber, and like us on Facebook, where you can find us at British Science Association Oxford Branch Group. See you soon!